What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark State. And as always, our most grateful, grateful thanks to everyone who helps keep this show on the road. Uh, And that's our bestseller academics in the Academy and our patrons over on Patreon. Uh, If you want to support the podcast and get tons of extra content, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. There you will find uh, ways you can support the podcast. You get all this extra stuff like load over 120 deep dives. Go for the chart topper option on Patreon. If you want to find out about the Academy and get me and Mr. D as your uh, tutors uh, and discover an amazing community. And we've got, and finally, after this, we're interviewing one of our Academy All-Stars for a special episode. So you can check that out as well. Go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Mr. D, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. I'm absolutely freaking out over inflation though, Mark. Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Inflation figures came out saying that. I I don't know how much books have been affected by it. In the UK, apparently, Food's been up 18%, but what they yeah. haven't reported in the national statistics, what they have excluded is the costs of podcasting. <laughs> yeah, through the, the roof, costs, mate. The costs <laughs> of podcasting, folks, have gone up 100% for us in the last yeah. 12 months. 100%. So I just want to I just want to add to your your request there for people who are looking to support us. Please, please join join and support us because um that would absolutely help us hugely. It's uh, and we want to support we actually want to support as well the people that help us put this podcast together. So it's it's yeah. sharing the love with everyone. So but it's it's good Mark. We've got spring in the air. Mm. But I've got to say, and I don't want to even mention these two letters because we will fall down a rabbit hole without even starting, without even starting this podcast. But I have been playing with AI this week. We're going to talk about it a little bit in this week's interview. I know it's a hot topic. It's a huge hot topic and it's going to be for a long time, but my mind is officially blown. I Mm. honestly don't even know where to start. And I mean, I've experienced a lot of things in my life. The advent of the internet. I remember the day I discovered the internet. It was when I found a Metallica, um, and a Metallica to guitar tab on a Usenet group, like when it was just all <laughs> text, right? It wasn't even there wasn't even a thing called a web browser when I discovered the internet, and that blew my mind. I thought, oh, is there more of this stuff? But AI is just it's my technological everything. brain yeah. is not capable of taking in what's going on right now. So, anyway, folks, if you're if, if you're interested in this, we've got a, we've got some interesting things to discuss today in the interview. Um, but before we dive in, Mark, you, you've got a, 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 a not a virtual, um, is yes. it a virtual? It's a virtual. No, no, real life in real the flesh. Life. Real life we in want. the flesh. We want more real life. Yes. There's going to be all sorts of opportunities over the summer to see my pale face in the real world <laughs> and throw rotten fruit at me or whatever. But the, the first one is coming up on Thursday, 30th of March. I'm going to be at the Blackwell's Bookshop in Manchester with friend of the podcast, Cueve McDonnell. He's going to be interviewing me. He's going to be holding my, my feet to the hot irons. So that should be fun. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, Witches of Woodville Books, the film Unwelcome. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be really great. So it's Thursday, 30th. So if you're listening to this on the Monday, it comes out. It's this Thursday, 6.30 to 8 p.m., Blackwell's Bookshop, 146 Oxford Road, Manchester. I'll put a link in the show notes. Come and see. I, I love this because we've talked about beta reading. There's a bit of that in today's interview. Mm. We've talked about like collaborating with other people, and we often talk about writing books with each other. But I love what I'm seeing happening in our writing communities where we're getting individuals collaborating with each other. And I've noticed yeah. like you interview Queeve, he interviews you. Yes. And, it, <laughs> and it's great because, you know, ultimately it's so much easier to answer someone's questions than just to go online and speak. <laughs> so mm, for people out yeah, there, this yeah. is, I mean, I would, I would recommend going to one of these events anyway, just to see 
the benefits of, 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 of having a discussion with someone about your books? Because really as authors, we don't have discussions about our books. We have discussions with ourselves in our heads. We're always in our heads. We're always thinking in our heads. It's a one person conversation. Well, it's a monologue in our head, but it's a discussion between you and your voice in your head. That's really what an author kind of goes through. But I think we have to practice finding a partner who will say, I'll interview you, you interview me, or be mm. to read my book, I'll be to read your book. I think that's something that's so undervalued, isn't it? In, a, in, yeah. in For people that don't have any kind of community, they don't realize that's what you get from being part of something where there's everyone wants to scratch each other's backs and it's so lovely. There won't be any scratching, I promise you that. It'll be two men having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the whole in-conversation thing is, you know, it's great. It's sort of come come out the festival circuit really i think you know where you would get authors doing panels and interviewing and cross interviewing and all, all that kind of stuff so it's um and it, it it's nice to be interviewed by your peers as well by people who kind of know what you're going through too. exactly yeah so, uh, yeah there's more empathy fun. there do you know fun. the weirdest thing is i this is a bit of a strange story but i once went to a weekend personal development conference and it was a long it was like started at eight in the morning finished at midnight every day it was really long days and what the presenter asked us it was a guy called tony robbins and he uh, it, when he got well, like everyone was getting fidgety after it obviously after an hour or two and he'd get everyone up and he did this thing and it was very weird but he got everyone to to face a certain direction the same direction and then he said right put the hands on the person in front of you right now give them a massage rub their shoulders right? <laughs> and it was just like this ridiculous state of like literally thousand people all massaging each other's shoulders and as strange as it was at first it was actually really lovely <laughs> and the energy in the room was brilliant and that's what i think of this these communities like everyone massaging each other's shoulders all at you the same time you probably need written consent now you probably days. do yes <laughs> <laughs> amongst adults i'm sure it's absolutely fine but but oh, no i think it's it it was a it was a really interesting, you know, it just shifted the whole energy in the room. And I, and I think of that, this idea of even virtual communities, even when you're not in the same room as someone, for somebody to say to you, yeah, I know what you mean. I know, mm. I know what you're feeling. Oh yeah. I had a really bad writing day today. Or, or tell me about how you're struggling with this or how you're breaking through that. I, I tell you what, folks, if you're listening to this podcast, if part of the reason you listen to this podcast is to kind of feel connected with a writing group, I really, really encourage you to kind of go out there and find that community that works for you as well, because it, it just, I don't know, it just changes, it changes everything for writers. It's, uh, it makes you realize we've always- We see it on the academy. We see it yeah. in the XP group on exactly. Facebook. Exactly. It's like, you're not alone. I think that was one of the, when we yeah. interviewed um, a couple of people before, that, that was one of the themes. So yeah. if you feel alone, if you feel alone, really make an effort this week to try and connect with maybe at least one other writer and just chat with them about how their writing's going and yeah. build a build a bond around about that love that you both have. So anyway, enough of my that was almost my motivational minute, wasn't yeah. it? I did say I did so say I was gonna back, do something. It just jumped yeah. out. So there was an unofficial one as a warm-up for next week. <laughs> um but Mark, let's dive into this week's interview because there's some really great stuff, isn't there? This is great. Delighted to speak to Jane Davis, who's been a long-time listener and supporter of the podcast as well. Uh, she writes historical romance set in the late Georgian Regency era. She's self-published with around 38 million Kindle Unlimited page reads, and her latest book is King George's Man, which is a Georgian romance inspired by the highwayman Alfred Noyes. Uh, we discuss using a critique site instead of an editor, if it's okay to bend history and, topical this, her experimentation with artificial intelligence. Ooh, right, folks, uh, listen back to this. We'll, it's absolutely fantastic and she has so much to unpack afterwards. So join us after the interview for a deep dive. But let's listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Jane Davis. Jane Davis, welcome to The Bestseller Experiment. How are you today? Very good, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. And what I love is because when I when I interview uh, authors, I tend to go back and look at old interviews and look at their website. And I'm delighted to see that you've mentioned the bestseller experiment quite a few times. So uh, it's it's especially delightful to have you have you on the show today. It's um, have you been listening to us for a, for a wee while then? Since uh, since the episodes in the tens, I think. Really? I'm certainly here for the great bollocking episode. <laughs> ah, heady days. Heady days indeed. Uh, funnily enough, I'm seeing Ben Aronovich next week, so um, I'm going to gird my loins again for that one. Uh, but, uh, what, what's delightful is uh, 
this sort of came about by accident because you you signed up to my newsletter and you won a book in a prize draw and you reminded me who you are. And we have mentioned you on the podcast a few times. I thought, we have got to get you on the podcast again. This is wonderful. And you've got a new book, King George's Man, which is a Georgian romance, which is your genre uh, that you've done been incredibly successful in. So um, tell us about uh, King George's Man, your new book. It's uh, it's a short novel rather than a sort of, it's about 60,000 words. Um, and it was inspired by the poem The High Women by Alfred Noyes, um, which is something I was taught in school, as I think many people are. Um, and it came back to me because the Canadian singer Lorena McKennett has set it to music and I like listening to her. Right. So that's pretty good. Um, but I was never quite happy with the high woman is a sort of tragic hero because basically he's a criminal who held yeah. up other people at gunpoint. <laughs> um, so the high woman appears in the story, but he's he's a villain with not that much more than the walk-on part. And there's one or two other episodes that people who know the poem will recognise in it, but the hero and heroine are completely new characters. So mm. it's inspired by, but it isn't that story. Um, I did get the Society of Authors to ask Noise Estate if it was all right to do this, and they said yes, but please acknowledge us. So there's mm. a bit in the back of the book about that. Um, but it was fun to write. Yes, the, the high, I grew up watching, you know, Dick Turpin on Sunday afternoons on the telly. Yeah. And he's, you know, the high woman is very much a romanticised figure, but they were just crooks, basically. Let's let's not get too romantic about them. You know? Violent thugs, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But King George's Band is the latest in in your Regency uh, fiction. I mean, you've, you've done incredibly well. And um, something like, I think you said, nearly 38 million Kindle Unlimited page reads, which is just astonishing. You had an incredible year um, uh, uh, re- recently, and you've sent me some statistics about the sales and your earnings. And, you know, you've got a wonderful series, the Marstone series. When you first started out, was this always the plan or has this evolved organically? Have you have you sort of rolled with the punches? It's evolved. Um, I w- wanted to be a writer since I was in primary school and inflicted pages and pages and exercise books of dire writing at my teachers. <laughs> um, I got interested in the Regency when I was in my teens because my dad was a teacher who did a couple of tours with service children's schools. So we ended up in Malta when I was in my teens and we rented a house, um, a furnished house. And the people had also left some of their books. And there was a whole set of Georgette Hayer novels. who was effectively the author who invented Regency romances. Um, So I got hooked on them then. And a couple of times during my life since then, I tried, tried my hand at writing things. And those have thankfully never seen the light of day. Um, I ended up being a writer of school textbooks purely by chance. Um, and I actually started turning my hand to fiction again because it was something to do when I couldn't sleep at night. I'd sort of lie there and think about the next bit in the plot and right. write it. And eventually I had a couple of full-length novels and wondered what to do with them. And by this time, Kindle and self-publishing had not quite as big as it is today. So this was about... 2017 or 16 so it was it was going properly Mm. um and it was listening to the bestseller experiment that convinced me I actually needed to do some kind of editing to it not just slap it (laughs) up there um but rather than pay a development editor I found a critique site that suited me right and so every book since then has has been put through that critique site if you see what I mean where authors swap critiques um and it's a good place for networking. I, you know, I end up with two or three people that read my stuff and I read their stuff. So it's a bit more time consuming than send it to a development editor, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I, I get a manuscript assessment done, which is maybe a couple hundred quid for five or six pages of this bit works, this bit doesn't. So you could pay a bit more attention to that. Um, and sometimes it just feels right when it's mm. been been through that and I just send it straight off to copy edit without without an assessment. That's um, and, and you've also got a community there as well. This is this is another thing we find is so important, finding a community of other writers that you can you can share and swap this stuff with. Yeah, that community's more sort of about the craft of writing with a bit on the sales, but the sort of sales and marketing, there's there's your Facebook page 
and the various pages run by Mark Dawson because I've taken some of his courses on advertising and implemented a few bits of it, but not enough. Because I've only been doing Amazon ads so far, and they were quite effective to start with. They made a big difference when I only had one book out. Um, But the effect of them seems to be tailing off now. So I'm trying to make myself try and get the hang of um, Facebook ads and things. But I haven't. I thought it would be better to concentrate on the current book and get it get it out there. Yeah. Because publishing more books is also an excellent way of marketing. Yes. Well, that that does seem to be. I mean, I I was reading the reviews of your books and. So often people are saying, I love this and I see there are more and I'm going to read them all. And that yeah. is, you know, and if you've only got one or two books out, that's okay. Thank you very much. If you've got, as you have, how many books are you up to now? Uh, 11, I think. 11, exactly. So, you know, if it, that's that's great because then suddenly, they get, which is why you're getting these amazing Kindle Unlimited page reads and and, and sales and uh, and backlist sales as well. So do you feel like you're at a point where it's finally starting to gain its own kind of momentum? or Because or, you did a book bub ad uh, in December, didn't you? Yeah. Um, last year it felt like it was gaining momentum because I had several things ready and I, I, I published five things last year. Um, one of which was a box set for the series, um, which so that really only involved a little bit of formatting. Um, one was a companion companion novel, like a parallel story to one of the series, which didn't sell particularly well. But um, I'm not very disciplined about what I write next. Some whatever story is lodged in my head has to be written, yeah. Um, or I have to make a decision to abandon it. But it's it just sort of niggles until it's on paper. So, and that was fun to write as well because fitting the book it was parallel to it was a story of a, as many regencies are, a young woman who's trying to be forced by her father into a marriage she doesn't want. And the companion story is told from the point of view of her maid. So right, right. there's some of the same events, but the maid has her own sort of below stairs romance and. So on. So it was kind of it was a challenge fitting the two stories together, but it was a quite a fun challenge. Fantastic. So I had sort of basic structure there, and I just had to build on it, build on it. And you're you're sort of building your own universe with the series, and you have characters coming in from other stories and 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 moving in and out, and they could be background characters in one stories and leads in another. So how are you keeping track of 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 all of those stories in the series and and the characters coming and going? Well, the series is only four novels plus this companion one and a prequel novella. The the other half of my output are all standalone novels. Right, right. Or novellas. I quite like novellas because they happen quicker. <laughs> and sometimes a story can only stand a novella. Like um, the shortest one is only about 18,000 words. Mm-hmm. Um, and the format I printed in wasn't even thick enough to have lettering on the spine. <laughs> Whereas the first book I published, which was also a standalone, was 165,000. Right. Which kind of is the answer to the question of, did you ever consider going the trad route? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is no, because I've had to cut it in half. Yeah. And it would have taken ages, etc. cetera. Um, so, yeah, the, the novels are, someone says, how do you choose how long it is, is going to be? And I say, well, the book chooses. It's however long it needs to be. Right, right. That's, that's fascinating because you, you've got two things going on. One is you've got that indie author thing of, I just want to write what I want to write. It's going to be the length that I want it to be. I'm going to put it out when I want to, yeah. you know, which is which is uh, terrific. And you've also, you know, you're, um, you're, you don't necessarily have to deliver a new one in the series. You can, you can write standalones as well. How aware are you now of your readership and and what they expect from you? Uh, are, are they expecting more Marston books, or are they are they happy with the um, the, the the standalone novels? Um, they've never actually said what they want next, but I have seen quite a few reviews for the Marston books to say it's a shame it's finished. Um, I have got an idea for book five, and I've also got an idea for book. What will it be? Two and a half. Right. In other words, it, <laughs> it, fit, it fits in the middle. The, the, the Marstone novels are all standalone. You don't have to have read the early ones. Um, 
it's just it's linked by the main character who becomes the Earl of Marstone during it. Mm. But I deliberately wrote them as standalones because the the one that gets the most traction is quite often the one that's published most recently. Right. Um, okay. And if I've if I've bought a book and it turns out that I can't understand half of it because it's part of a series or there's far too many extraneous p- people who just call around just because readers want to see the characters in the previous book and they don't really have anything to do with plot, that's just switches me off. Right. So right. although you probably enjoy it more if you read them in, in order, you don't have to. Um, well, let's let's talk about reader expectation in terms of the genre and the Regency novel. And as you said, you know, Georgette Heyer really was the, the great pioneer in this, but it is one of the most successful genres i think particularly with with indie authors because it's not something that traditional publishers do particularly well they don't you know they can't as you say you would want to publish maybe two three four books a year whereas a publisher you might only get one a year if you're lucky um, i wish i could write that many books a year. <laughs> <laughs> last last year was uh well 2001 whenever it was that was a unique right okay. i'll be lucky if i get two this year i only got one last year but let's let's talk about what readers expect what are the what would you say are the essential elements of a of a regency novel what what are they is you know you've got that heroine you've got doomed romance you've got the the hero what are the what other elements are readers looking for that you you might feel obliged to deliver as a, a, an author of regency fiction um a lot of people want they're, they're sort of like billion billionaire romances set in the past a lot of them yeah a lot of people just like them when the dukes Right. So, but you know, you you think Regency England had about a thousand dukes who were all young and wealthy and attractive. So, <laughs> <laughs> you've only got to look at our current crop. I think there's one who qualifies as that, and then that's the Duke <laughs> of Westminster. Um, the rest of them, uh, uh, <laughs> so a lot of them are like lords and ladies and sort of long car- long dresses and carriages and balls and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not all that good at writing those. Um, some of my books don't have a lord in sight, and they're about uh, common people. Like the one I published, the last one I published at the time we're recording this was set in Yorkshire, and it was a, um, a reasonably well-off farmer and a, and a soldier, um, and the difficulties they had. Um, there's a lot of tropes you can choose from, um, you know, sort of like engaged to the wrong person and friends to lovers and, and enemies to lovers and all that kind of stuff that you get in contemporary romance. Mm. Um, the readers I have, um, some of them like steamy. I can't write steamy. I hate re- I hate reading it. It's boring. Mm-hmm. If I find another heroine who shatters into a million pieces at the relevant <laughs> point, I'll throw the bloody <laughs> book at the wall. <laughs> so I write non-steamy, sort of... Um, it fades to black. Maybe mm. after they started undressing, but before the before body parts need to be mentioned. <laughs> and a lot of my readers like that. A yeah. lot of my readers also like um, the best I can do with historical accuracy. And right. I bend history now and then, but I usually put a note in the back of the book owning up to when I've done it. Yes. Um, and adding up, you know, um, a few other bits and pieces that that readers might be interested in knowing if it was real or or that kind of thing. So my readers are sort of sweet. I don't like that term because it's, they don't like pages of sex, basically. Mm. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. there's one or two bad reviews who I, who I stopped this book because there was bad language in it. <laughs> but if you don't like the odd bloody or used daft bugger kind of thing, then don't read my stuff. But it's not littered with them. It's only the characters who would say that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Didn't really answer your question. There's a whole wide range of expectations. Some people expect balls and several sex scenes, even though actually to have sex before marriage for the class of people we're talking about was really a no-no in those days. Mm. Mm. Um, well, does that answer it? it? It does kind of, yeah. I, I want to come back to tropes, actually, because every genre has its tropes and a very common question that we get. On the in the academy as well because I do weekly surgeries in the academy is is okay. I'm writing in this genre. I know what the tropes are. I want to write about those tropes, and readers are expecting those tropes. But how do I make them my own? How do I take ownership of them? How do you approach those particular tropes that you mentioned there uh, and and make them feel fresh? Well, there's a lot to choose from. So 
every book only needs one or two. So different combinations, um, characters from different classes. I mean, if you're doing a sort of cross-class romance, which realistically didn't happen that often, but you can have all sorts of occupations for the lower class of the pair. Um, I like to set things in places that seem real to me. So um, the first one I wrote was set in the Cotswolds because that's where I lived at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've set a cup, the, the King George's Mount is set on the North York Moors. The actual poem, The High Women, just had a moor. Um, but my, I've got family that live in Yorkshire and I've sort of done loads of walking on those moors and things and it just seemed to fit. Mm. Um, so I think giving a proper sense of place uh, can help. Mm. And I'm not sure you can always make it fresh, but you, you do your best just by having characters that give you characters enough depth to feel real. Mm. Um I always feel that an author's voice is important as well. You know, we can we could all write a, or have a go at a kind of a, a, a romance novel or a detective novel or whatever, but it's it's our voice that's unique that can't be replicated by anyone. Is that how aware are you of your own voice as a writer when writing in the genre? Because it's set in the past, I do make an effort not to use words that weren't in use at the time, especially mm-hmm. in dialogue. Um which not all Regency authors manage. There's, there's a bit more we could talk about on that in a minute, actually. It's a non-fiction book I'm working on with a fellow author. Um, I try to make sure it sounds English, which is easy for me, but a lot of American and other non-British authors don't manage. Yeah, I perhaps use more formal language in writing than I would um, if I was writing a contemporary novel or certainly more, more formal than I use in my own speech. Um just to kind of give a bit of a feel of sort of Jane Austen. I suppose you could say Jane Austen, not Georgette Hay, was the original, but um, um, she didn't introduce villainy in the same way as Georgette Hay did. You know, the odd kidnapping or something can spice things up a bit. (laughs) Uh, And that's, to be honest, that's an attraction of the Regency. It's things like um, no cell phones, letters could take weeks to get somewhere, journeys took days. There's sort of the great misunderstanding that some that lots of readers hate because if well, why didn't they just talk to each other? You can get away with a lot better when it would have taken weeks for the letters to get get to and from each other. Mm. Um, I think unique unique voices. I don't know. It just kind of does it on its own. Yeah, and you mentioned dialogue and um, that you were working with someone else on a nonfiction book. What what were you hinting at there? Well, this is a, an American author, Gail Eastwood, who also writes Regencies, and we've come across each other in Facebook groups. And we did a presentation together for the Regency Fiction Writers uh, group, which is a great one to join, by the way, if uh, if any of the other listeners are writing in this genre, um, about trying to get a Regency voice that sounds Regency. Mm-hmm. So her contribution was contri- was mainly concentrating on things like period-appropriate language. and some of the times when people go too far, like you've heard of four and 20 black words. Yes. So putting the digit before the twenties or the thirties was reasonably common, hmm. but some authors have someone who's eight and 10 years old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just don't. Um, so my part of it was um, Americanisms because Americans, I, I say Americans, but it can apply to anyone who's, who's not British. Um, apparently some of them, need to be told that there aren't chipmunks in the woods no <laughs> and horses can't put their feet in gopher holes and people don't pass they die mm. and they get put in a coffin not a casket yes and stoop only means bend over it's not a part of a house yeah so there's that kind of thing um so we they asked us if we wanted to do a full-length course we decided we'd rather do a book um so it's going to be it's not an encyclopedia of regency things it's it's um a sort of these things have tripped up a lot of authors try not to do it. Right, fantastic. So she 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 sort of committed us us on Facebook to saying it'd be out in the spring. So I just said spring might be quite late this year. <laughs> okay, we'll keep an eye out for that. And uh, if there's a pre-order link by the time this goes live, we'll we'll put it in the show notes so people can people can check that out. I don't think we'll be that far along. <laughs> Very late spring. 
<laughs> you mentioned you mentioned that you've published uh, school science textbooks. You've also been a teacher. You also started out as an engineer. Are there particular lessons that you've taken from that stage in your career that you've taken on? Because you've got, you know, listeners, uh, Jane was sending me sort of diagrams of of sales and uh, <laughs> things before the interview. I yes, this, I'm a geek. This is an engineer's mind. This is someone who likes to crunch the numbers. Uh, is Has that been helpful when it comes to being an indie author? Um, I think the number crunching helps sort of looking at sales and things like that, although trying to get my head around why some parts of my Amazon ads work and others don't just does my head in. But, you know, I'm sort of familiar with spreadsheets and things. Um, The publishing experience, I got into that because I'd been a teacher and I got into teaching because I'd had a a non-teaching job that involved technical stuff. So it all kind of links. Um, I think I kind of knew the stages of publishing intimately already because I was I say I was a commissioning, effectively a commissioning editor when I was right. there, but then I started writing for them. I went freelance. So I'd already been freelancing, uh, writing the school textbooks and occasionally doing some kind of small project management job for them for about 10 years before I dipped my toe into the indie publishing. So the idea of taking on all the different bits and pieces uh, wasn't frightening. Um, yeah, because creating a textbook is very much a team effort, isn't it? You know, there there are different people making contributions. Whereas, yeah, you you couldn't do that as an indie, not not the books we did because they were they were full scale courses. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, colour yeah. books to use in class and all the worksheets and all the teachers' notes, and so there's a huge amount of um, photographic permissions and all sorts, and a huge sales team. Yes, because un- unlike what they say about trad publishing for fiction, um, those publishers do do all the marketing and selling. So we effectively, if you write for them, um, because I did a lot of writing for it as well as the publishing, you're writing to order. You know, you have a a set format because it's a team of authors. Mm. Um, They make their money when the new curriculum comes out, which they don't seem to have stopped doing recently. I think they might have had a few other things on their minds recently. (laughs) Can't Um, imagine what. (laughs) No, but you want the new textbooks to be available as soon as possible when the new curriculum has to be taught. So it's always a huge team effort. Um, But I'm a bit of of an introvert and a loner, so it's quite nice not to have a huge team effort as well. (laughs) It's ready when it's ready. My copy editor is actually my sister who does it professionally. Um, But we do have quite – that sort of means that I'm fine with quite a lot of back and forth about – I've just got King George's man back from it for the second time. So there might be one or two bits I'll just send back and say, I've changed all this again. Does it read okay now? Because sometimes you just don't see things yourself. Yeah, yeah. There is, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that you are an introverted author. And, and listeners, <laughs> we ask people to fill out a form and send their author photo. And yours, is, I think, is the first author photo where they've covered their face up with a book, which I think is brilliant. Um, <laughs> so, partly because I was too mean to get a professional mugshot <laughs> done. But that was me. That was me sitting that in my garden you. Good, good, with good. a book and a, and a huge mug of tea, just like this. Brilliant. Now, I think there will be lots of authors because, especially if you're an indie author, there there might be some pressure. I've got to sell myself. I've got to have. I've got to do this and go on podcasts and all this, all this kind of stuff. But you've you know made a success of things without really putting your mug, as in face, <laughs> front and center, as as say I do. You know, and other authors yeah. do, and that must be very reassuring for a lot of listeners. Is is that they don't have to necessarily sell themselves. You're selling the books and the genre, aren't you? And uh, I have. I have sold me a little bit because I have a Facebook page that I don't really push, but some of my fans uh, look on it and I, I sort of post holiday pics and me yeah. picture of me cycling and things like that on it. Um, and I also put some pics like that in my newsletter. So there's about three and a half thousand people out there that get the odd photo of my holiday, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so I do put some personal stuff in there, but you don't have to have a face. Yes. Yeah. Well, what I love, books. what I love as well is, is so much of because I was looking at your website and the blog, and you're regularly visiting historical buildings and garden. You've got a lovely word cloud, and the biggest word on the word cloud is garden, which I thought was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's partly because my partner really got into gardening in the last sort of ten years, so we actually go to visit the gardens. 
Right. He's not that interested in going around the house quite often, but I can leave him wandering around the grounds and do the tour myself. Um, but yeah. But, but it's all very it's all very on message, on theme, on genre, without you know, without having to put necessarily put yourself front and center, which I think will be reassuring mm. to a lot of people. The other thing I want to talk about, which which is really interesting, and I think is something a lot of us are going to be dealing with in, in the near future. You recently did an audio book of Saving Meg and you used an AI, an artificial intelligence narrator. And it says on there, digitally narrated using the voice of William Birch. So tell us about that as an experiment and, and how that came about and what you've learned from it. Well, <clears throat> the reason I experimented was um, I was I was approached by Tanto, who do audio books mm, yeah. and they've they did my first book Mrs McKinnon's and actually the first in the series as well source for the gander um and I get some income from that but to be honest I haven't really tracked bothered tracking it because it's not a lot I don't think I've earned my advance yet and that's quite a few years ago I got all enthusiastic and paid a, a human to narrate one of my other books and again that I don't think I've earned back yet mm. what I paid for it but to be fair, I haven't been pushing the marketing on that. And I'm not really sure how to do it because um, I publish it through Findaway Voices. It's harder to push it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd see, I think Joanna Penn had an episode about AI. She's very keen on all things technological. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She's, um, yeah. And she's. I think she's had some of her nonfiction books narrated. And I think it would work quite well for that. Mm. So I, I decided to try an experiment because this, this company was relatively cheap. And I picked Saving Meg's because it's only 18,000 words. It was the shortest book. Right. Um, They give you a sample chapter um, of the voice before you have to pay the full back. And I asked my um, beta reading team if any of them listened. And if they did, would they listen and say what they thought? Some of them said it was fine. Some of them said horrible. But enough said it was fine. So I thought I'd try it. And... I wouldn't do it again until it's improved a lot because they gave you a round of of edits, but the the AI voice got the um, the emphasis in sentences in quite different places yeah. to where a human would have done it. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, it completely changed the meaning, mm. um, or or gave the wrong impression, and so it. I, I couldn't face going through all, all of it again, so I paid my sister to do, do it. So <laughs> I, I paid for editing on it as well. Right. Um, and I've I've put it up on my website for the free. People can listen to the first chapter free and then buy it for a couple of quid if they want to hit, read the rest of the story. Yeah. Or they yeah. could just buy the get the ebook on Kindle Unlimited. It's probably easier. <laughs> well, I'll put a link because I had a listen and I thought it was absolutely fascinating because. I think if you hadn't told me it was an AI voice, I think I would have. It's almost there, isn't it? It's it's. Yeah. I mean, and these things are only going to get better as well. And as you say, there's a strange emphasis on certain words, and it is sometimes it's a little bit sat nav. You know, you get the the rising intonation on some of the wrong words or what have you. But it's almost almost there, and I think these things are only going to get better. So it'll be interesting to see how this develops over the next few years uh, you yeah, might not know the answer but, to this as well yeah go on go sorry on. The, the but is um i haven't listened to any of the other audiobooks all the way mm. through the one i had done myself I, I did for proofing but again i found it out to my sister um so i listened to the first part of the mrs mckinnon's and one of um and the narrator does the voices not very different voices but enough different so you can tell yeah. who's who and she gave one of the Mrs. McKinnons a Scottish accent. And to be honest, in spite of the surname, be- because the women had the surname because of who they'd married, it hadn't occurred to me that this character would be Scottish. Yeah. Um, but it sounded, you know, think, well, of course. So that that narrator, amongst many other things, has brought more depth to that book. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the people sound the same from the AI. Yeah, you know the women don't sound any different. Now you don't want someone, some bloke, to put on a squeaky voice. No, <laughs> but a, a real human uh, can bring a lot more to it than that AI could. So I wouldn't actually say if you enjoy listening for the sort of immersive, mm. lost in the story, as opposed to re- as opposed to listening while you're doing the ironing, 
um, I think the AI is still quite a way off. Yeah, yeah. And and, and use the, the voice of William Birch, and you may not know the answer to this, but does William Birch get a cut? I, I presume he's they've they've scooped up his voice digitally, scraped it and used it and and use it to sort of remix and 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 make your audio book. Do you know if he gets any money for that? No, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> You'd hope he must have some kind of money because Yeah, he must have a deal. I or mean something. I mean some people think they shouldn't really have to pay much for why would you pay for a Kindle book? It doesn't cost them anything. It costs all my time. Yeah, exactly. And why should the publishing company get all the money, not me? Yeah. Have a cut. Yeah, so it's yeah. the same argument. Um I don't I mean I don't know what's going to happen to that. But at the moment, I'm still on the side of if you want to listen to an audio book, it will be much nicer with a, a, a human. Yes. Yes. I, I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. <laughs> 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 What's coming next, Jane? So we've got King George's Man. You've got this uh, book with Gail, the nonfiction book coming with Gail Eastwood. Uh, what else is on the horizon? Um, I've got a book that I've got in first draft and I put away because it could have been the first in the series. Mm-hmm. I've got some ideas for books two and three, but they haven't gelled yet. So I'm just going to get it out there. It's another. In this case, book one will be standalone. I don't. I don't do cliffhanger endings. That, I yeah. hate that. Yeah. Um, books two and three will probably need to be read in order, but they're far distant horizon. So, <laughs> you know the business about having the meat cute in the first few pages. Yes. This pair don't physically meet till halfway through the book. So right. that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it has a title an improper correspondence nice um, book two has a title and a vague plot and that's a dubious paternity and the third one might be called a grand spectacle so Excellent. I've even got titles that sound similar unlike my <laughs> other series um, it needs a bit of reworking to get a better plot like I have a great tendency to not give my characters enough agency on the first draft through right okay um but I'm hoping to get that out second half of this year sometime brilliant and then I might concentrate on adding another book into the middle of the milestone series see how it goes see, it really lot, goes to plan yeah so you're a lot prolific than you thought you you know than you said earlier you uh, this could be a you know another bumper year so uh Jane Thanks so much for speaking to us. This has been absolutely fascinating. And, it's uh, been a hope, pleasure. Hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you very much, Mark. Oh, Mark, when Jane talked about that experience she had as a child going to her this, this home in Malta that mm. she stayed at this house and she discovered these books that she'd never seen before, mm. it made me think how many stories are there out in the world probably everyone listening to us right now, where you can all go back to that very first discovery of maybe a series of books. It might have not been the first book, but a series of books that kind of, it was almost like your ticket, your gateway into the world of the fantastical. And, and it just, it just brought so much nostalgia for me. when I think back to my writing days, was there a book for you or a series for you that, or an event happened in your life? Oh, yes, yes, yes. It was the first time we ever went to Spain. Okay. And I was... I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 years old. And we went to Spain and there was a, typically in Spain, there was an English shop, you know, and they, but they had, they Next had at Pam's the back. Calf. Exactly. Yes. Doing the exactly. English breakfast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There was, but at the back, there were all these secondhand books. And you still see these in Spain now, you know, where English people, are, they, they take a book on holiday and leave it yeah, behind. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, like I say, I was 11, might have even been younger, might have been 10, but I remember picking up a copy of The Omen by David <gasps> Seltzer, which is um, which weirdly is it's a tie-in novelization because he wrote the script, but he wrote the book, but he wrote the book so quickly it came out before the film, I think. So people think the film was based on the book, but it's actually a tie-in novelization. Huh. And I remember reading, and it, I think it was my first proper grown-up horror, and it blew my tiny little mind <laughs> and, uh, you know, put me on the path to Stephen King and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, and of course it has, a, you know, if you know the omen, it has all these prophecies from the Bible and stuff like that. And I didn't, I'm reading it and thinking, oh, this is all real. It's all in the, but it's not, he made it up. I'm thinking, oh, this is all real. Oh. This is, you know, but yeah, so it was, so I've got a, um, lots of happy memories of, because you know, just going into little secondhand places like that because you never know what you're going to find. And I'm always conscious that if I go away somewhere and there is one of these shelves and bookshelves, and I like to leave something behind as well. We've, I mean, just mm. up the road here, we've got 
uh, a, a village library in an old red telephone box. It's been converted. And I get sent stuff, you know, because basically, you know, because I book... Uh, I'm a talent booker for the podcast now because <laughs> I, book, I book the authors. Publicists will send me proof copies and I can't read them all and I can't store them all. So they all end up going up the library. So, I, you know, if you if you live near me in sort of North Kent and you're wondering why there are hardback first editions of really big name authors in there, it's because of me. Um, so, it's yeah. Gonna it's going to be cues. There's going to be people loitering around that telephone start, box now. Start getting requests. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. totally. You yeah, can set your own, so, yeah. set your own uh, telephone box up. It it's is like a, It's though. like a pay it forward thing, you know. It's, it's like oh, it is. I love thing. it. No, I love it. And I think yeah, we have a couple of those locally as well. And I, I think I think it's such a wonderful community th- thing to have. But yeah, I had I had that. I think there's different moments, aren't there, in childhood. So there's the first scary book you read yeah. or the first adult book you read. That's always a big moment. For me, it was, weirdly enough, it was a Stephen King novel. It was Cujo, which Excellent. like freaked me out. And I yeah. read words I didn't even know what they meant at the time. And there was no internet yeah, yeah. to look them up. Um, <laughs> but I think as a kid as well, for me... It was those books, those fantastical kind of kids' adventure books. You know, I, I, I mean, I think Enid Blyton will be on a lot, a lot of people's list. The fav, famous five, uh, the Secret Seven. My, my kids love the Secrets. Right. Was it Secret Seven books? Secret Seven, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. mountain and this and the ship. And um, But I think it's really important for everyone to stop and just think about, like, what was that series or that book or that author for you as a child that kind of blew your world apart and 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 probably started your journey of love of reading, which then led to love or interest in writing? And it's it's so important as well when you think about kids growing up today. It's like, what can we, how can we help them get into those types of books? I know a lot of parents sit and do bedtime reading stories, but what they're doing is they're pulling out the books that they want to reread from their childhood. And I think that's an amazing gift because it introduces books to kids that um, they otherwise might never come across in their scholastics, you know, book club that they get at school. It's the things that you discover yourself when it becomes your thing, you know, and, and it's the thing that the, the, Maybe it's the thing that the teachers and the parents don't approve of. That might just be me. But, you know, there were books that I thought, oh, yeah, this is a grown-up book. This mm. is something that, you know, because um, I read the Jaws, uh, Peter Benchley's Jaws book as well. Again, about 10 years old. Lots of exciting new words in that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's 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 reading those things that, that, that you discover for yourself that might have just been left on a shelf somewhere that might have um, – uh, it was little things like my, my uncle used to read those little war comics as well that, you know, those little sort of A5 war comics uh, that he would leave those lying about. And again, there was something a bit grown up about them, yes. you know, that uh, I'm probably not supposed to be reading this, but I did anyway. In a way, it's a window into the adult world, isn't it? For a child mm. to be able to kind of like, it's 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 almost one of the most important steps we take into into teenagedom or adulthood it's 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 our it's our safe way of you know not having to speak to a scary adult but it's a safe way of kind of like kind of having a little peek into that world and and feeling like you almost shouldn't be there but wanting to get more and more of it but i have to lament mark because i was speaking yesterday with someone about (laughs) the irony the biggest challenge that that parents faced back in uh, say when we were kids like back in the 70s and 80s was was you know catching kids reading under the covers with a torch and i was lamenting i said i would i would i would pay money to catch my child reading under the covers with a torch because nowadays the light is shining the wrong direction yeah right now they're looking at the dark web (laughs) right and it's like i just wish i wish the light would face the other way onto words in a in a in a musty old paper book then lighting up their face with TikTok videos and all God knows what else. But the thing is, is that it's funny, isn't it? Because that was that was the thing our parents used to like, put that torch away. What? Where did you get that torch from? Did you take that from your father's drawer? Like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's, I, I saw a cartoon online and it was from about a hundred years ago and it showed people on a train looking at paperback books and it said, oh, it's killed the the art of conversation. So people thought the books were the things that were going to kill, you know, so it's, it's, I don't know, what goes around comes around. It does, it does. I, you know, I read, 
more kids are reading than ever. Literacy's through the roof. You know, I people are reading. It's yeah. just we're cramming our minds with all sorts of like crap Others, as well. Other stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and there's a lot of good reading going on online as well. I don't want to dismiss oh, yeah. that. But yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing beats a good old paper book, honestly. <laughs> Let's talk though about writing writing like insane numbers of books. There was a moment in the interview with Jane where you talked about the number of books she'd written. And she, I, I, these, this is like to quote her. She said, it's, um, yeah, book number 11, I think. I think. <laughs> yes. I just thought, what a brilliant problem to have. Like you've written so many books that you've kind of lost count. You know, mm. you know, you've, you know, you're doing well when you can't remember how many books you've written. Yes, and now it's uh, and she said publishing more books is an excellent way of marketing, you know, and I think she's absolutely right. If you keep getting books out there, if someone picks up one, then there's a good chance they'll want to read the other 10 or 12 or however many it is that you've uh, that you've written. And particularly if you're an indie author as well. But uh, yeah, I you know, we talk about milestones, that thing of well, I mean, when you get to our age, you sometimes forget your age. So I think it's <laughs> it's the same I thing. Think, I think if you've got more more books than you have numbers in your phone number, that's where it all starts. <laughs> I reckon because it's hard enough remembering a phone number most of the time. But I I love the fact I love the fact that and we should celebrate this that um, again another joy that we have as readers is we find a new author and we read their book and we love their book and then we go online to see what else they've got and that moment where oh my gosh, they've got like 10 other books. It's like this, it's like you've just discovered this treasure trove that you never knew existed. And yeah. again, that's the kind of joy that authors like Jane bring a reader when they've, when they've got that back catalogue. Yeah. Um, another reason folks to just push through, like finish those books, get those books done, get them out there. Um, because you give people that huge sense of joy when they discover there's tons more they can feast on. But then you get the problem once they've actually like read your back catalogue in like a week. They're like knocking on doors saying, Oi, we When's need the next more. one? Yeah, I, know. I know. Then you get the pressure. But then yeah. again, you that's what you want. I mean, that's a great problem to have, you know, <laughs> fans demanding more of your work it helps you yeah. kind of get yeah. down to right. There's nothing like the day after publication for people going, When's the next one? You spent a year working on this thing. Yeah, great. When's the Oh, read it again. Be, there must be a way. That, how is how can we slow readers down? Like it's just like it is, it's ridiculous. They can literally you can polish a book off. What other mm. industry or profession is there where it takes like maybe twelve months to create something which someone can consume in a tiny amount of time? Is there anything else? Well, it's all M the creative music. industries, isn't it? Music's the same, but music's uh, different because you do listen. Music, you listen to the track. Like you love a track. You, I mean, I've, okay, Death Cab for Cuties, yeah. new album absolutely unbelievable i've been listening to it all week but I, i've consumed it and i'm keeping on streaming it and yeah, of course they're yeah, benefiting yeah. from that but books is different isn't it I'm, I'm a one book kind of guy if i read a book once i know okay the ultimate dilemma of the book reader are you the i read a book once i love it so much i just keep reading it till the covers fall off or are you the kind of person who's i've read the book once that was amazing and i bet you there's something else which is just as amazing and i want to read that i'm the latter i always want to try something new yeah, I mean, when I was a teen and in my early 20s, I would read the same books again and again. But that was where I was reading a book every day or every couple of days. And yeah. I, just can't, I just can't keep that up now. What I tend to do now is I buy new editions of a book that I've read many times with no intention of reading it whatsoever. So I get a lovely slipcase edition of something. I said, that is going to go on the shelf. I'm never going to crack its spine open. Idiot, yeah. you know. So I know, I know that. I got the whole Calvin the Hobbes collection, oh, and God. someone pulled it off the shelf, and I was like, "No, no, don't, don't touch, touch it. it! Don't touch it! That was like one hundred and fifty dollars. Don't touch it!" And, and, then I, and then I actually reflect on it, thinking, "How daft am I? Like, what's the point of having? I mean, you're not buying it for the spine. I mean, let's be honest. That's what you're no. paying, like, what forty dollars for for to, for the spine, yeah. and, and and a pair of white gloves. You know, Guilty I think charged. it's." It's funny, isn't it? We're funny human beings. Bring on AI, that's what I said. No, I'm not joking. Um, but actually, segue. Uh, Let's talk about this AI narrator. I, I I knew that you could do this. I've seen, I saw David Guetta apparently write some lyrics with an AI-generated lyric writer and then went to another generator and got Eminem, an Eminem-emulated voice to sing it. And then he played it in front of like, 30,000 people to just, to play, just to see if they reacted. And they all went mental thinking Eminem was on his track. Yeah. So I've heard about this 
emulation of AI. In turn, and apparently we can do it with our own voices. Have you heard about this, Mark? Yeah, well, and it's things like I, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and I heard that James L. Jones basically gave Disney and Lucasfilm his voice so that Darth Vader, even when James L. Jones is, you know, getting on a bit now, even mm-hmm. if he's no longer with us or doesn't have that kind of voice, it's there, filed away to be used. Uh, and, and likewise it, with Mark Hamill's image. And, you know, so yeah. it's, um, it, and it's, I mean, again, let's not go down a rabbit hole on this, but we I, we are going to oh, yeah. do a special episode on this, folks, because we it's it's um, personally I'm excited, but I, I know a lot of authors are worried about it, thinking it's going to put us out of business. And this is a week where, in the news, we've seen that um, you know Clark's World had to shut down submissions for short stories because people were submitting AI generated stories uh, on KDP has been, as I predicted, by the way, uh, has been, you know, deluged with uh, AI uh, generated novels, which aren't very good. Um, It will get better, but I'm not worried because there's also great opportunities as well. It's terrific for generating blurbs and uh, titles and, you know, copy for ads and stuff like that it's, it's or even really, just really ideas good. like if you're stuck yeah. plotting yeah like you yeah. can you can ask ask chat gpt for some ideas around what happens next i mean again i i've, I've been having debates with a lot of people about this and i'm a, i'm a tech head i'm i grew up i grew up in the internet like i'm responsible solely responsible for all the bad stuff on the internet i mean i was in the mid 90s i i literally and i say that jokingly but like we we did things like the very first e-commerce site launch ever. I was in charge of Princess Diana's Memorial Fund in 19, mm. I think it was 95, 96, something like that. The Comic Relief website, when they first took e-commerce payments, um, you know, we did the, we ran the budget website when the government, we had to like somehow make sure that the website didn't fall over. We'd go into mm. 10 Downing Street and set up their servers. That's what I did in the mid nineties. Went to the, set, the governments in the east of, all over the world, like setting up in, in go- it was bonkers. Mm-hmm. And back then I had no idea what would be built on top of this. I mean, and mm-hmm. AI is very much possible because of the internet. And even for me, as someone who was right at the forefront of all this technology, talking about streaming media in 1997, I went to Liverpool football club and tried to convince them that they should start putting their football games online. And they laughed at me and said, yeah. Credit cards, size screens, who's going to watch that? And I went, well, I think it might take off as <laughs> YouTube. And, and yet, even, even mind, I mean, even everything I've done in, in, in the internet world, technology, the companies I've set up, the websites I've run, I can't get my head around just how ridiculously huge this could be. And even Bill Gates came out yesterday and he said, I mean, Bill Gates, he said, this is the most, the, this is one of the biggest technological advancements. It is. It is. Ever. It's going to change a lot, and it's going to it's going to change the way people work. It's people are going to lose jobs. Uh, people are going to get new jobs uh, because well, of it. that's it's going to change absolutely yeah. everything. Yeah. It's going to. I, yeah. Everyone's worried about the loss of things, and that's where we feel the threat. But I'm thinking, what will it create as well? Yeah. But again, I'm on the fence. I'm not going to at right now. I'm not going to say I think it's amazing. I think it's really potentially dangerous. I think it's both. But one of my friends who's in his 50s said to me, you know what, Mark? He said this week, and this is wise words. He said, in a way, I'm quite glad I'm getting on so I don't have to like worry about this for like, yeah. you know, far. but I do think about our kids and the generations that follow us. Um, oh, I've got some stories to tell, but let's let's leave that for another, another episode because there's just so much that we could cover. But would you do that, Mark? Would you take an AI narrator of either your own voice or pick you know, off the shelf, you know, maybe Julie Walters, you know, you've had her before, but if you could pick, <laughs> who would it be actually out of interest? Who would you get if you could pick any voice to, to narrate Ooh. your next book? Um, well, I mean, you know, I've got to tip my hat to Candida Gubbins, who does my books anyway, because she's an amazing of narrator. Course. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I... I, 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 was, I, I don't know. I don't know, actually. It's, I mean, James L. Jones is a good one. Yeah. You have. I mean, when I told uh, my wife that there was uh, a box that could uh, replace me and do everything that I could do only quicker, she asked where she could get one. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> put them tish. Um, <laughs> talk about talk about uh, being being made redundant. Yeah, every husband in the world. But can we I did. can I do the dishes? That's what I want to know. Can, can I, we, I do the dishes? We should. Uh, I'm going to put some um, text up on uh, on on my blog because we did uh, we did ask Chat GPT to. Uh, put together an episode of the bestseller experiment. It's too long to recite here, but it was oh uncannily spot on, wasn't it? <laughs> it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I, I mean, that was one of the first things, you know, when I saw that, I thought, oh, wow, this is like, partly because I think, well, bestseller experiment, you know, we've, 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 we've got like a million downloads. It's, it's a it's a big writing podcast, but in the big scheme of things, it's not like, um, you know, it's not like kind of like, you know, Fox News kind of level of, of mm. listeners each week or viewers. So I was blown away, but how, well, I don't know how it got the information, maybe from the transcripts on our yeah. on the episodes that we've got online. Been, yeah. Yeah. But it was bonkers, wasn't it? Although, yeah. interesting enough, it had, and it had the transcript broken down, didn't it? It had names yeah. of people speaking. And we had, who was the guest? Jane um, Smith? Jane Smith. Jane yes. Smith, the multi-million selling... <laughs> Okay, uh, folks, if you want to have a laugh, go. Is it going to be linked from the show notes, Mark? Did you yeah, say? Yeah, I'll, I'll pop a link in the show notes. So you okay, can check you've it got out. to go and look at this. It's it's absolutely hilarious. Um, the thing that was kind of interesting, though, is that m- one of us was called Mark and the other one was called Marcus. <laughs> With a K. <laughs> With a K. <laughs> Which, weirdly enough, and I'm sure this isn't related, was my nickname in primary school. Well, I and get I, called Marcus a lot as well. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I think AI did it possibly just to differentiate because I thought, well, it can't have Mark <laughs> yeah. and Mark. Yeah. So whether it was clever enough to just change one of our names slightly, but it, it could have had Mark. If it had Mark one and Mark two, I would have freaked completely. Yeah. Maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's yeah. the new version, but no, do go check it out folks. Cause it is absolutely, it's a, it's quite a short transcript, which proves it's not real. Cause me and Mark talk for far more than three oh, minutes yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah. it was. But. It's the one thing it got really wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, folks, if you'd like to join us for the extended episode, we've got so much more to cover in Jane's interview. We want to talk about, I want to ask Mark what a companion story is. I've, I've heard of it. I think I know what it is, but if you don't know what that is as well, join us. I'm going to ask some dumb questions. Um, also, we're going to talk about reader expectation and something called fan service, which again is new to me. So if you're interested in what that is, we're going to talk about it in the, in the uh in the extended version. And also we're going to discuss whether pacing is easier today. The pacing of a story is easier today with communications and technology. And in reverse, was it, is it much harder to write a novel where you're waiting three weeks for a letter to be delivered? Not exactly going down in, in the born ultimatum as a, as a, as a movie that in some ways. Um, and the other thing that we want to talk about is, is it necessary to have to put yourself as an author front and center or like Jane, can you build a career without having to be out there? Because we know that that's a big uh, challenge for many, many authors. So if you'd like to join us, please pop along. And guess what, folks? You'll support the podcast in doing this. Pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and support the podcast and get access to the extended. So Mark, what's going on in social media this week? Oh, wonderful stuff. Well, let's start with the big, big news. And this is so wonderful. Sarah Moorhead, uh, who's been on the po- podcast before. She, we did a special episode with Stuart Turton. You remember she taught Stuart and oh, he's become a best episode. And she, you know, she, she, she had Witness X, which was this amazing book. Uh, she's got some terrific news. She signed a two book deal with uh, Canelo or Canelo, oh, Canelo, forgive me. Uh, and um, the first one is called The Treatment, which is publishing in August. It's a high octane, spine shivering, speculative thriller. It involves neuropsychology, crime, ethics and justice. Really, really excited for Sarah. Another longtime supporter of the podcast. She's in the BXP group as well. And I've booked her for the podcast. We're going to be talking about her book when it comes out. So her story is a fascinating one because she had this thing where it was, you know, first book, big splash, and then she was out of contract and she was kind of thinking, is this it? But she's back and it's going to be a big, big inspirational story. So that's um, oh. that's just terrific. So big I was so delighted, so delighted to, to see yeah. Sarah's success in that. And uh, she's definitely in, in my top 12 scousers. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> wonderful news. And that, just talking about that interview that we did with, with her and Stuart, that was one of my favourite interviews. So if you've missed that one, you've got to go. Uh, it was, I mean... I'll put a link in the show notes. Say no more. It was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, Steve Gowland in the BXP group. He's got a cover reveal. His new book, Delusions and Dragons, is out in May. And it's uh, just terrific. Really, really. I get a kind of romancing the stone meets fantasy thing here. Now, Stuart, uh, Steve, rather, Steve Gowland is one of our 200 words a day. Every single day, he's out there putting those words down, logging them online. And he's, again, someone who's, we, we talked about the more books you write, it's like they start marketing themselves kind of thing. Yeah. Steve's getting a great library of, of fantasy novels together. It's just terrific. So Prolific, again, I think we have yeah. to call Mr. Steve yeah. now. I mean, that yeah. is just, it seems like every, every, it feels like every other episode we're talking about a new cover of Steve's book. It's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. And do you remember we were talking about streaking and nudity a couple of episodes ago? Oh, you might dear. remember. Right, okay. I do remember that. Where's this going? <laughs> Go on. Well, Gavin G. Smith, another friend of the podcast, amazing author as well, uh, he just tweeted us, and this is in all caps, he's put, right, drunk and naked. <laughs> I said, uh, whatever makes you happy, Gavin, as long as you get those 200 words down. He said, it makes edits more fun. Do an edit take a shot and he said autocorrect try to turn the word shot into something else but we won't go into that so you know it's working for gavin people well there we so, go uh, yeah can i make yeah. just one suggestion one suggestion not in the coffee shop no no not again that, not after last time no no because you know <laughs> absolutely brilliant drunk and, and naked and writing yeah brilliant well you know as we said we knew there would be somebody out there that would be doing doing it. We do it with Gavin. What, whatever it takes, <laughs> folks. That's what I say. Whatever it takes. Get Look, those folks, words down. If you want to get in touch, find us online. We're at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. You can drop us a line there. On social media, on Facebook, we're bestseller experiment. And Twitter and Instagram, we are at bestseller XP. And uh, give us a rating wherever you download your podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating, give us a review. All of these things make all the difference to visibility and getting the word out there. Brilliant. And if you'd like to watch this episode on YouTube as well, you can get uh, many of our episodes on YouTube as well. Watch me and Fully Mark chat by sure seeing us yes. in all our, in all our um, I wouldn't say glory, Mark, that might be pushing it a bit too much. But if you would, if you would like to also get the writing habit of a lifetime, folks, don't, don't forget 200wordchallenge.com is the website to go to, to sign up to try our seven day challenge. Can you write seven days, 200 words minimum? It will change your life. It will change your life if you get if you get into it. Absolutely fantastic. And for anyone else interested in joining the academy, becoming uh, a member of this incredibly friendly, inspiring, and wonderfully supportive community with Mark and I as your coaches, please pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. So, Mr. Stay, have a fantastic week. You too, sir. And I look forward to chatting with you again next week. And it's a goodbye from Mark One, and a goodbye from Mark Two. Goodbye! Goodbye.